Welcome to another episode of the Maine Polis Podcast. For today's show, I'm going to be talking about Maine's former 2nd District U.S. Congressman Bruce Poliquin and his current attempt to win back that seat. Bruce first won in 2014 in a seat left open after Mike Michoud decided to run for governor. Bruce won re-election in 2016, but then, because of Maine's adoption of instant runoff voting, a.k.a. IRV, Bruce lost his seat in 2018 to Democrat Jared Golden. A veteran from Lewiston, Golden has held that seat since. Bruce is currently running against Caratunk select woman Liz Caruso in the June 14th Republican primary. The winner will face Democrat Jared Golden and Independent Tiffany Bond in the upcoming midterm elections in November. <clears throat> I've had the chance to listen to Bruce give his campaign speech a few times in the past few months, and so what I'm going to do today is I'm going to go over the main points I've heard from his own mouth, along with a little bit of what's being reported in local papers, and break down why I think it's a problem. Okay, one of the big messages laid out in his campaign speech, and actually this one isn't even Poliquin specific because I've seen this messaging from a lot of Republicans recently, and it's that the upcoming midterm elections will be a cakewalk if they can hug the center. And that's the phrase in the messaging. The idea is that they want to hug the center or hugging the middle. That's how they win in November. It's smart messaging. These midterms could see the Republicans pull something off pretty historic. But if they want the, that momentum to stay, they'll need as many voters as possible to not just be voting against Democrats, but actually having people voting for Republicans. Having a coalition built on a common enemy isn't as strong as one built on common ground. Okay, so other than pushing the idea that Republicans <clears throat> will need to cozy up to those more centrist voters, unenrolled voters that might lean Republican, and maybe even some disenchanted Democrats, he covers a handful of other topics. He talks about the border, he responds to the defund the police movement, goes into the economy a bit, and also talks about the 2018 loss because of instant runoff voting. So I'm going to go over each of those and point out and explain my concerns. First one, and this is a big one for him, fixing the problem at the U.S.-Mexican border. Bruce spoke about how he had visited the border recently, probably a few months ago now. Apparently it was a trip organized by Republicans in Congress. I think it was Lindsey Graham, maybe it was McConnell, it was one of those, probably both. Anyway, they invited Bruce along on that trip. He got to speak with border agents, a tour of the southern border, and a personalized story he can now use in his campaign. He doesn't talk about funding a wall, does talk about the flow of illegal immigrants across the border, but a big focus for him was the amount of illegal drugs flowing across the southern border. He has some fentanyl stats memorized and can make the connection between the hard drugs coming across that border and the havoc they've played in Maine's communities. But the solution, as I think he sees it, is to first and foremost stop the flow across the border in the first place, which really shouldn't be shocking. That's a pretty standard Republican messaging. But, okay, here's the thing. Out of all 50 states, and with the exception of Hawaii, Maine is literally the furthest state from the actual physical southern border. And frankly, there is little the average Mainer in the 2nd District can do about it on a local, county, or even state level. All Mainers can do is deal with the fallout, which, for Maine at the very least, means a devastating drug problem that stretches far outside just the metros into the most rural of communities. He's not wrong for wanting to support some drastic policy changes at our nation's southern border, and he does draw a line between the fiasco going on down there and Maine's own drug-related problems here. But how many drug clinics in Maine's 2nd District has he visited? 
Has he met with any of the homeless shelters about what the battle looks like on the ground here in Maine? Spoke to drug treatment facilities on the barriers they're hitting providing services to Maine's rural communities? Maybe met with a few local police departments to hear directly from our own officers, not federal agencies some 2,000 miles away, about what border fallout they see here in Maine and in the second district. What hit is our judicial system taking? What other unseen effects are going on in Maine outside of just the addiction problem? Polycon can describe the problem that's happening at the actual border because he got on a chartered plane and took a guided tour. But I'm not convinced he could really explain what the effects of a broken border looks like in Maine. What happens to the Maine are swept up in the fallout of a weak southern border that ends up dependent on hard drugs manufactured from far away. Not just their mental health struggles, but also what it looks like, the physical changes of the body that those closest can't help but see, and the damage to relationships with family, friends, and their community. Bruce would undoubtedly toe the party line perfectly fine when it comes to changing current border policy with Mexico, but I'm not convinced he fully appreciates what policy shifts Maine would need at the federal level in order to better respond to the negative effects actually felt here in Maine because of that broken border. I don't think he could talk at as much length to that issue as he could about going to visit the border itself. Another topic I've heard him campaign on was the defund the police movement and the problems those communities are now experiencing after making some of those sudden and drastic budget changes. Bruce really emphasized the importance of making sure our police are getting all the resources and funding they need. So again, not necessarily anything wrong with his position and it's again standard Republican garb, but here's the thing. It'd be one thing if Bruce was running for a city council seat or something at the state capitol, but this is a U.S. House seat, and he's talking about what is normally a locally controlled and funded public service. Like education, this country has a long history of local control over their sheriffs and police departments. Local taxes pay for their salaries, pays for their facilities, and a lot of their equipment. Police chiefs are hired and fired by locally elected officials, and sheriffs are elected directly by the people. And frankly, if New York City and Minneapolis want to cut their police budget, that's not Maine's business, or the business of the federal government to step in and fill budgetary gaps when those being policed decide to make those changes. Even if we were just talking about Maine. I read through a bunch of Maine Beacon, Press Herald, BDN, and Mainer articles, and nearest I can tell, I can count on one hand how many communities have actually done anything in response to residents demanding funding changes to their local police? Portland, South Portland, Lewiston, and Orono. That's all I could find. And none of them actually took funding away from their police departments. South Portland started some sort of human rights commission that's going to work with the SOPO police to make policy changes. Portland ended up hiring a couple of unarmed officers to help in non-emergency and mental health calls. Just focusing on the 2nd District, a resolution of some sort was put in front of the Orono Town Council but was flatly rejected, and Lewiston, one of their city councilors, put up a resolution that, and this is a quote from a Maine Beacon article, quote, a resolution requiring the city to first affirm that Black Lives Matter, and then commit the city to conduct anti-bias and de-escalation training, recruit people of color to the police force, and create a committee to establish a process to investigate community complaints made against police officers, end quote. And that resolution passed 6-1, to one, so a lot of stuff going on in that resolution, but none of it advocates for actually defunding the Lewiston Police Department. So my question is, why would someone running for Maine's 2nd District be running on that issue? 
because that problem is literally non-existent in Maine. None of our communities, certainly none in the 2nd District, decided to defund their local police or sheriff's departments. Even the Maine State Police. Other than trying to close down the constitutionally questionable Maine Information and Analysis Center, no legislative bill that I'm aware of has been approved that would cut funding to our state police. Frankly, I'd like to see him explain a bit further on this point. What does he intend to do at the federal level so that local police departments are receiving every penny their budget needs, however that may be defined? Is the idea that perhaps the funding of police can no longer be left to those from the community being policed to decide? What does he believe can be done at the federal level to support local police facing budget cuts from the communities they serve? He goes into the economy, which is a no-brainer. It's the economy, stupid, as the saying goes. Talks about how the Democrats tanked everything, and so he and his experience in business sense are exactly what will help this economy get back on track. Which, hey, the guy made millions working in the private sector, and so if the idea is to get enough Republicans in there to make some things happen quick, fast, and in a hurry, Bruce has the vocabulary and would likely prove useful in the same way he'd prove useful in border policy. He'll make sure to toe the party line to make sure things get done. His flaw here though, and this one isn't new, and will absolutely get thrown into his face come the general election because it happens every single time he runs, and it's that his experience in the private sector came from working in the financial sector specifically. He made millions in an industry that doesn't always have the best reputation for working class voters living in the second district. The other thing his campaign speech gets into is he talks about how he can definitely win in November because he's done it before, and even mentions that he's won this seat three times already, which, for those paying attention, he's technically only won twice. He was first elected in 2014 in an open seat with only 45% of the vote. Democrat opponent Emily Kane pulled in 40%, and independent Blaine Richards got about 11%. And then, in 2016, he was re-elected, he beat Emily Kane again, this time getting 53% of the vote against her 44%. So those are the two he won. The race he likes to say he won, even though he lost, was his 2018 re-election bid, because that was the first election in Maine using instant runoff voting after it was adopted by referendum in 2016, and then reaffirmed by referendum in 2018 when the legislature attempted to postpone its implementation. And just a real quick explainer on why IRV caught on in Maine in the first place, Maine had developed a history of picking its politicians with less than 50% of the popular vote. For example, just looking at gubernatorial races, Republican John McKernan in 1986 and 1990 won with 40 and 45% respectively. Angus King won his first term as governor in 94 with only 35% of the vote. John Baldacci didn't have majority support in either of his elections, winning with 41% of the vote in 2002, and then getting elected with only 38% in 2006. Paul LePage had a similar popular support problem, getting only 38% of the vote in 2010, and then 48% for his re-election in 2014. And as this continued to happen over the past few decades, this idea started taking hold that we've had a long line of politicians gaining power without a majority support, and then... After LePage won, that idea progressed into thinking that a majority of voters were voting against the winner, and that's a problem that needs correction. And so the idea of instant runoff voting grabbed nonpartisan public support in Maine pretty quick. 
Democrats and Republicans, young and old, had a memory of some politician they hated getting elected without popular support. And it wasn't just gubernatorial races. As I mentioned before, Bruce won his first election in 2014 with only 45% of the vote in a three-way race. Now, why does Bruce like to say he won in 2018, even though Jared Golden was declared the winner? Because, if not for the switch to IRV, Bruce would have won that election. He got 46% of the vote compared to Golden's 45%. Tiffany Bond and William Hoare got 6 and 2% respectively. And because of the new IRV rules, the votes for Bond and Hoare, those ballots were run again except going by the voters' second choice. And with Bond and Hoare out of it, Bruce got 49.5% and Golden got 50.5%. And Bruce did not take this well. He specifically singled out IRV as the cause of him losing, which isn't completely wrong, and then spent a significant amount of time, and I assume money, trying to fight this in the courts, attempting to argue on constitutional grounds that IRB shouldn't be allowed, and that the election should be overturned. But nothing was really going his way, and eventually he gave up, because there really wasn't anything he could do about it. It passed by referendum, twice. There wasn't a lot the legislature could do, or a court for that matter. There was some constitutional questions for sure, but no court was going to toss the whole thing. And so, my initial thought when I heard him bring this stuff up again, and with a wink and a nod saying he won three times already, it sounded like sour grapes. He didn't win three times. He won twice. Unfortunately for him, the rules that allowed him to win in 2014 didn't apply anymore, and that was a decision made by referendum. Twice. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there is a large enough section of the voter pool that agrees with his view on IRV, and so his prodding on this does make some sense politically. So I decided to pull the results for the 2016 referendum approving IRV, and then compare them to the 2018 referendum repealing the legislature's attempt to hold off implementing IRV. And one of the first things I figured out was that the referendum passed in 2016 during the November 2016 presidential election, so think high voter turnout, but then the follow-up referendum reaffirming the people's support for IRV was in June of 2018, so it's going to be way lower voter turnout. In fact, statewide voter turnout was 486,322 voters less in June 2018 than it had been in November 2016. Nearly half a million fewer voters, a 66% drop in voter turnout statewide between those two referendums. But let's just focus on the second district, because that's where Bruce's potential constituents are. The second district was pretty similar to the statewide trend with regards to voter turnout between the two referendums. The second district had 240,299 fewer voters in 2018 uh, versus the 2016 one. So nearly a quarter million fewer voters in the second district alone. That's a 66% drop in voter turnout, just like the statewide trend. Now, interestingly enough, the second district as a whole voted against IRV in 2016 and then no again in 2018. So Bruce playing this angle might make some sense until we start unpacking this a bit more. Then this strategy becomes less convincing. Okay, first off, let's start with which second district counties supported the move to IRV. And there was only one that happened to support it both times, Hancock County. And then Waldo County flipped, 
They voted against it in 2016 and then voted for it in 2018. And then the rest of the second district counties, Androscoggin, Aroostook, Franklin, the part of Kennebec County that's in the second district, Oxford, Penobscot, Piscataquis, Somerset, and Washington counties all voted against the implementation of IRV both times. So again, maybe Bruce is right to push this. Unless, of course, the data also showed that even though most of the second district had voted against it twice, support for it was growing. And I think that's what we're seeing. First off, when voter turnout was high for the first IRV referendum in November of 2016, the blank ballot totals were pretty high for that ballot question as well. Like, only two counties, Androscoggin and that half of Kennebec County, had less than 3% left blank. All the others were 3% or more. A couple had over 4% of voters leave that question blank in 2016. Why does that matter? Because those rates were high enough that, had those people made a decision, it could have swung a number of counties into supporting IRV the first time around. Specifically, the blank ballot margin was big enough in Androscoggin, Waldo, and that half of Kennebec County that had those voters made a decision, it could have actually flipped those places in favor of IRV in 2016. Even Hancock County, the only county that did support it the first time, could have ended up voting against it had 3.3% of Hancock's voters that left the question blank made a decision to vote against it. But by 2018, it looks like a lot of them had started making up their mind on IRV. Waldo County, the one that flipped, in 2016, 4% of Waldo's voters left that question blank. In 2018, that number dropped to 1% and it flipped the county. Hancock County, the only one to support the measure both times, they had 3.3% of voters leave that one blank when the measure barely carried there in 2016. By 2018, only 1% had left that question blank and the percentage of voters supporting the measure went up. And it's not just the two that carried. Even in counties that voted against IRV both times, the percentage it lost by the second time had tightened. Aroostook, Franklin, Hancock, that half of Kennebec, Penobscot, Piscataquis, Waldo, and Washington all saw support for IRV go up the second time it was on the ballot. Franklin County actually almost flipped. Their 2018 results were 49% in favor of IRV and 50% against IRV, with 1% leaving it blank. Okay, now, in Bruce's defense, as I mentioned before, voter turnout for the 2018 referendum was way lower, 66% lower, equal to nearly a quarter million fewer voters casting ballots for the second IRV referendum. And so yeah, support for IRV went up, but it was with a smaller pool of voters. And so technically, it could be argued that support against IRV is higher when turnout is higher. The idea being that with the expected higher voter turnout this November, it makes sense for him to attack the IRV process. And maybe that assessment is correct. I don't think it is. I think it's more likely that, and this is especially among moderates, that support for IRV has grown enough over time that his focus on this is likely going to hurt him in a general that now requires majority support. Another point on this too is that Bruce trying to say that he's won this seat three times and he can win it a fourth time, well, he lost that third race because of IRV. IRV didn't go away, and this is going to be a three-way race again because Tiffany Bond is running as an independent again. And you know what the track record is for Bruce when it's against more than one opponent? 
because that's what two of his three elections were, three and four-way races. Both times he got less than 50% of the vote. It didn't matter the first time because Maine wasn't using IRV, but it mattered the second time in 2018 when it was a four-way race and he lost Jared Golden in the second round. And it'll matter again this November because the odds are, when Bruce faces off against more than one candidate, he doesn't get more than 50% support. And that matters now. The other thing on this too, and this goes back to why I don't think talking about defund the police is useful in Maine. Police, like elections, are controlled locally at the municipal and state level. And the only reason I would expect a candidate for U.S. Congress to run on an anti-IRV platform would be because they think federal policy should push toward tighter restrictions on the way individual states run their elections, something that constitutionally can get squirrely. So why then is a U.S. congressional candidate harping on this? He may be right, and IRV is so unpopular in the 2nd District that attacking it makes sense. But even if that's true, and he wants to help Maine get rid of it, then the way to do it would be through the state legislature, or to spearhead a third referendum. The way to do it isn't to take his gripe to a D.C. congressional committee in the hopes of creating federal policy to force Maine's hand, which is likely what Bruce would do given the opportunity. Okay, before I wrap this up, I want to go into a couple of things based on what I've seen in recent interviews and read from the local papers. One of Bruce's big problems is that Bruce doesn't live in the 2nd District. Well, he doesn't live in the 2nd District the same way other people that live in the 2nd District live in the 2nd District. What do I mean by that? Bruce Poliquin has a lovely oceanfront home in Georgetown, which is out near Bath where Reed State Park is, and well within the 1st District. And this is not a new problem for Bruce. It came up in his past campaigns as well, because he had his home in Georgetown back then too, but he also had a house in Oakland. And the attack was that he's basically a wealthy guy who decided to get into politics, so bought a house in the district he plans to run in, because, well, frankly, he could never win in the first district seat. Which is why he had the home in Oakland to claim residency at, because it also happens to be in the portion of Kennebec County that's in the second district. And when pushed on this issue in the past, he would say, yes, I've done very well for myself and have an oceanfront property in Georgetown, but I also have a home in Oakland, which is right outside Waterville where I was born and raised, and I still have a family in the area, etc., etc. And to his credit, the story was plausible. Nothing illegal about having a nice waterfront property, and he still had elderly parents in the Waterville area. And so it was an attack that I don't think was particularly effective in swaying his base or even right-leaning moderates. But now the story has become less plausible. In his time out of office, Bruce decided to sell his home in Oakland at some point and continued to live in his Georgetown home. And then, sometime late last year, in the lead-up to Bruce declaring his nomination for the Republican ticket, he decided to buy a second home in Orrington. Orrington. Orrington is a rural town just outside Brewer heading towards Bucksport. And... I really wasn't sure why someone like Bruce Poliquin would want to move to Orrington of all places. But then a recent Sun Journal article shed some light on why. The article is about an ongoing back and forth between Bruce Poliquin's campaign manager Ben Trundy and Bruce's primary challenger Liz Caruso. And basically what happened, according to the Sun Journal article that will be linked in the show notes, is that Bruce took offense to some of the stuff Caruso was starting to campaign on And so Ben Trundy, Bruce's campaign manager, sent out an email to quote-unquote party loyalists. 
And the article doesn't specifically lay this out, but somebody then clearly must have then leaked that email to the press. And this email to party loyalists was basically a response to some of the things Caruso had been saying publicly. And one of the things Caruso had been saying publicly is that Bruce isn't from the 2nd District. He lives in Georgetown and has a second home in Orrington for some reason. But according to that email sent out by Trundy and leaked to the press, the reason Bruce has that house in Orrington is actually quite simple. And this is from the Sun Journal article, quote, Trundy's memo also took issue with Caruso for her claim that Poliquin doesn't live in the district. It says he bought the home in Orrington last fall because it is centrally located in the district, end quote. So there's the reason he chose Orrington. He wanted to run for his old job, but he had sold the home in Oakland, and so he bought a home in Orrington. Why did he choose Orrington? Because it was centrally located in the 2nd District. Not, he fell in love with the views of the Penobscot River, or thinks their golf course is a hidden gem, or has some sort of connection to Bangor Brewer. No, he moved there specifically because he knew he would be running for that seat again, but couldn't until he could claim residency. So last fall, he picked a town on the map that was centrally located in the 2nd District, threw down some cash for a house, and gave his post office a change of address form. The article then quotes Trundy from this leaked email saying that Poliquin, quote, was born and raised in Maine, just outside Waterville, while Caruso is not. She attended an elite high school in Massachusetts and later worked as an engineer in Connecticut, unquote. And so, if this is accurate, then this is poor messaging coming out of Bruce's campaign manager, because let's think about this for a moment. If that's the response to the idea that he bought a home in Orrington for political gain is to say, well, that doesn't matter because Caruso wasn't born and raised in Maine, and basically try and paint her as some transplant from away. Okay, so there's a few things I want to explore there. The first thing is that if he wants to keep leaning on those hometown roots, then he should have purchased his second home along the Kennebec, not the centrally located Penobscot. Second, Trendy talks about Bruce being born and raised in Waterville while chiding Caruso for not being a native Mainer. Okay, so I don't know what it was like for early Francos in Waterville, but I've heard some pretty interesting stories from the folks in Lewiston. And quite frankly, it's odd to see Bruce draw on those early Franco roots in order to disparage someone with shallower roots, like those that likely did to his own ancestors when they first moved down from Quebec. And not only that, She's been here for just shy of three decades. Was Caruso born and raised in Maine? No. She made a deliberate and calculated decision as an adult to walk away from a professional engineering career and relocate to Maine, to start and raise her family in Maine. Not just Maine, she went deep into Maine, way off 95, further in than most Mainers will even dare, set up shop and called it home. And even still, let's say he gets through the primary. Jared Golden is born and raised in Lewiston. He doesn't keep a second house outside Lewiston, or somewhere else centrally located, and he doesn't have a home down in the 1st District that he lives in between campaigns. And neither does Caruso for that matter. That's only Bruce. The last thing I'll talk about before wrapping this up starts with a history lesson. In 1916, so a little over a hundred years before Bruce Poliquin was voted out of office, Democrat Daniel McGillicuddy was voted out after serving just one term as Maine's 2nd District Representative. Why does that matter? Because before Bruce Poliquin, Daniel McGillicuddy was the, was the last 2nd District Congressman to be voted out of office. Over a hundred years went by before it happened again in 2018 when Bruce lost his re-election bid to Golden. 
During that time, starting in 1918 and not including Bruce Poliquin or Jared Golden, 14 other people have held that seat, and none of them lost a re-election campaign. Three of them chose to retire, one of them ended up being redistricted into the first, and one died while in office. The remaining nine all went on to run for either a U.S. Senate seat or to run for the main governor's office. Frank Coffin, John Baldacci, and Mike Michoud all served as the 2nd District's U.S. House Rep before running for governor. The remaining seven, Wallace White Jr., Margaret Chase Smith, Clifford McKintry, William Hathaway, William Cohen, and Olympia Snow. All of them held that seat, and all of them eventually decided to run for a main Senate seat. Only Clifford McKintry lost that bid. All the others served at least one term as a U.S. Senator. There had been a good 70-plus year stretch where at least one of Maine's two U.S. Senators was a former 2nd District Representative. That ended when former Governor Angus King was elected Senator in the seat Olympia Snow left open. And so, yeah, there are a lot of signs and polls saying that Republicans could do something historic in the upcoming midterms. But for Republicans looking at their primary options, this shouldn't just be about getting any Republican you can in there. It shouldn't automatically be the candidate that makes the most sense for Lindsey Graham and other ruling class Republicans. It should be the person that makes the most sense for the 2nd District. And who would make the most sense for Lindsey Graham and the upper crust of the RNC may not make sense for the 2nd District and Maine's own Republican Party. Because what would make sense for the Maine Republican Party would be to choose someone capable of actually beating Jared Golden even if the economy was good. That could connect to the average 2nd District Mainer without having to relocate to its geographical center. That has recent small business experience relevant to Maine, but not necessarily financial sector experience from over 30 years ago. Of course it's important that they support the police, want strong borders, and think a free market will solve our economic ills. They're Republicans. That's what they're supposed to believe. But what else do they believe? How could they prove useful outside of the party line? What about them will swing moderate Maine voters this November? Is this someone that could maybe one day, after some time on the 2nd District Incubator, could be a governor or a senator? Someone that could potentially carry the entire state one day? Those are the questions that 2nd District Republicans must ask themselves on June 14th. What might the future of Maine's Republican Party look like? What does it sound like? What characteristics would best bring a local Mainer's perspective to Washington, D.C.? Is it someone that'll be a year shy of 70 if sworn in, that has fought hard to be a career politician but just can't get that broader popular support to make it happen, that lost their last election to the incumbent they're hoping to face, someone that could never carry a majority support in Maine's first district, let alone a statewide contest? Or should it be someone with a statewide base of volunteers, nonprofits, and advocacy groups that blur political boundaries, that help drive a successful statewide referendum initiative as recent as this past November, understands K-12 education policies just as a million U.S. children are being pulled from public schools, runs a small business as a registered Maine guide of all things, and is intimately familiar with Maine's tourism sector, and knows what it's like to be an actual rural Mainer because they are an actual rural Mainer. Okay, that about wraps this one up. I've almost finished the article that supports most of what the last podcast episode was about. A lot of voter registration stuff. So that'll be up on the website soon if anyone wanted to dig a bit deeper than what even that last episode covered. 
But for now, that's all I got. Thanks for listening.